agree with that advice as well. So I agree with the advice from this article. And also I second uh, Lee agree with Sesson's advice about restructuring our society. 100%. <laughs> Coming out real strong. Season four. Welcome back to Attached. Welcome to season four. Relationships are good. Change the society. And scene. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson of the University of Tennessee. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Dr. Sessa Nagash at San Diego State University. Today, Sessa will bring us a conversation about the passing of Queen Elizabeth and grief. Then in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, The Surprise of Reaching Out, Appreciated More Than We Think, hmm, a Hallmark card. And then <laughs> in good or bad advice, we'll be talking about advice uh, from the World Wide Web's about work-life balance. If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us all at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. As always, wherever you listen, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And if you really love listening or even love listening just a little bit, uh, go head over to our Patreon page and please become a member. But before we get to all of that, welcome back, ladies. How are you? Lovely to see you. Tell me about your life. How are things going? All of that. Good. <laughs> I am doing well. It is still extremely hot here. There's no transition to fall. That is a theme. I think every start of every season of Attached uh, for me specifically, but we have restarted softball season down here, which has me attempting to help my daughter practice during oh. off days. And as somebody with limited hand-eye coordination <laughs> and zero softball experience, it is a really fascinating yeah. test of like my patience with myself. Mm -hmm. It's not really a test of my athletic ability because there is no ability being tested. Uh, I am so bruised from just this weekend. Oh. Why would the number of times I fell flat oh. on the ground trying to get a ball? <laughs> I accidentally hit a ball at you, but no, 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 nope. you fell. Just fell like countless times. Um, and I feel like I'm really inspiring my child to practice harder so that she can avoid like this specific athletic outcome in her own life. Oh, um, but it's so much fun to watch her learn and play and um, enjoy spending time with her teammates. And just the days that are like off days where we're practicing at home. Um, it's a learning opportunity for me specifically. It's supposed to be for her, but it's for me. So that's been interesting. That's lovely. Some nice mother-daughter time and getting in there. Sure. I'm getting out of there. Like I'm literally sprawled on the ground. Um, <laughs> catcher is not my position, I don't think, for future softball teams that I okay. will not join. Yes, yes, yes. No yeah. adult leagues will have you no. anytime soon. Oh my gosh, goodness. 
I wonder how she would describe your yeah she did to my husband uh when we saw him just an hour later yeah mama was on the ground at least five times (laughs) yeah so I definitely did observe that that's so funny Sesson how are you doing how was your summer how are things Uh, Well, I was going to say the same thing that Sarah said about the weather. It's sort of taken over our lives. Uh, The heat wave in California was Mm -hmm. just unusual for for us, not because it got warm, but because it stayed warm for so long. And, um, you know, I'm terrified of my um, utility bill. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I'm sort of racing myself for that evening. What was the temperature? What did it get to? Oh, we got into the hundreds. It definitely, really? yeah. I stayed into the nineties for many, many days, and mm-hmm. um, with no break. You know that was the unusual part. And then um, for us, you know, it was a bit more challenging too because my son um, broke his arm, and so we were limited in terms of, you know, we couldn't oh, do any water no. activities. Right? <laughs> so no, no, not with a cast. Stayed. Yeah, no pool, no beach, which I think most people, you know, flee to that it was just not an option. So we got really creative. We discovered many wonderful new board games and um, <laughs> we discovered some oldies, some goodies, you know, I love it. And a couple other ones. So we my had fun with son, my middle son loves to like invent board games. Does Dre oh, do cool. this ever? He's tried. It's gotten weird. So I think it's just- so inventive. And then he gets the Come whole family here. to play. And then the rules change a lot as we're progressing. But he's done probably like a dozen or so. And like oh. each one gets like a little better, a little better. They're very clever. The last one he did, he usually does cardboard from the recycling, mm-hmm. right? Like he'll take it. And it was like four different cardboard pieces and they were different realms. And like, there were different wow. ways to hop to the different realms. And I'm like, this is advanced stuff. Wow. Uh, but I love board games. They're so fantastic. Yeah. I think you guys got to play some. There's we so did. many cool kid ones. Like I just. Um... There's a lot of great ones. A lot of great old ones and a lot of really, I think, cool new ones have come out. And so we've got them all. <laughs> yeah, got them all. Every single one yeah. of them. Um, well, to keep on with the weather theme, it's a wonderfully crisp fall day here in East Tennessee. Um, fall is here. I don't know if it'll stay. It's actually shockingly cool for this time of year. So mm-hmm. it might pop back up, but we're in like Rubbing the, it in, I see. I know the high 70s, low 80s here. Um, wow. I know. It's kind of crazy. It's a little bit chilly. High 70s? What? <laughs> I know. No, it's crazy. I think the low is like in the fifties tonight or something. Mm, Um, I know I go uh, on a walk with one of my good friends here in town every Monday and Friday on a walk. And um, we go on a walking trail where before I had kids, I used to run a lot and like train for a couple of half marathons. Don't do any of that anymore. Um, But I was telling my friend, her name is Melissa, shout out. The, the trail we walk on was very nostalgic for me because I'm like, oh, I remember like when I used to run on this trail all the time, how lovely. It's so fantastic. Um, and I told her, I was telling my daughter also, oh my gosh, I used to run on a trail. And she goes, you used to run mommy? And I was like, yes, I did before I had you. I was I ran somebody. So much. And she did not believe me. Fair play. <laughs> 
because when I try to run with her, it's like uncoordinated, like my leg, I don't know what happened. Not only lost my running skills, but like my capability of running is also gone. So that's also um, what happened to me. I used to also <laughs> be a runner and now it's just uncoordinated. <laughs> Same thing. I was never a fast runner. I just did it. But now, like, I run and, like, my hips hurt. <laughs> so it's like, ow, ow, ow. You're anyway. swinging back and forth? What was that? Yep. How I run. It out. See, exactly. Beautiful. Now you're like my daughter. First up, popping culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sesson, what do you got for us this week? Yeah, so this week I'm going to talk about um, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, um, who passed away recently. Anybody who's sort of been on the news uh, TV has you know, seen that announcement, and um, there's been a global outpouring of support, but also sort of mixed feelings, um, you know, criticism yeah. around the monarchy. And it's sort of a longstanding stake in colonial practices, uh, colonialism. And there's a lot to say in that area. But really what I want to focus on today is sort of the impact on family. Um, I've mm-hmm. noticed in the last few days that some of the coverage is focused on the impact it might have on certain relationships within that family, particularly mm. the sibling relationship between um, Prince William, William and uh, Prince Harry, or don't know if they call him Prince anymore, but um, yeah. <laughs> the titles are confusing. Anyhow, so I thought that was, you know, it, it's sort of an important piece for me to focus in on because I think for many um, of us who've experienced grief, who will experience grief, um, especially around the loss of a really close loved one, there's a fear sometimes of what that might do to relationships, <clears throat> just even the grieving and mourning process and what that looks like for people who are sharing um, you know, a love for someone who just passed. And also thinking about how sometimes that grief can bring people closer together, right? And sometimes of course it can cause um, strain in what is already yeah. a strained relationship. And I thought it was interesting, some of the coverage around sort of, you know, the guessing game that people play with that relationship between the two siblings around, is this one thing that happened going to bring them closer? Is it going to cause a larger rift? I or, saw a lot of uh, people reading body language. <laughs> yeah, a lot of trying to interpret what's going to be the future of the relationship now that, you know, um, Elizabeth II has passed. And I think you know, for me, what it struck was this idea that we're supposed to know, like, you know, that somehow, um, you know, that there's a particular way to grieve and that it's going to mean this one thing or another when it comes to how it affects families and relationships. And the truth is, that's just not how grief works. Grief is, of course, for those of us who've experienced it, we know how complicated it is, how um, painful it is, and how much um, that has a, a larger systemic relational impact. And I think what we focus on a lot of the time um, around grief when we're reading about it and we're experiencing it is like our own grief, right? And on a very individual level. But really grief is something you do um, typically with others. It might be siloed in your grief, but it's not something you're experiencing just on your own. Often people are experiencing it 
as well, but just there's sometimes the fact that people don't come together in their grief. And that can sometimes feel like something that's necessary for us to process and cope, but then it can also complicate our grief and make it harder and leave us feeling really lonely and isolated. Yeah. Um, and so there's no clear idea of how one should experience grief, how one should come together in grief with others. Uh, but I do think it's worth a conversation, right? And I think it's worth more conversations because I think we all experience grief, whether it's um, of a physical loss, an ambiguous loss. It's a very common experience in all of our lives. And I don't think we always think about what we do with our grief in terms of um, how we deal with it as a family or as dyads sometimes. Yeah. So I really struck that chord with me yesterday when I was watching people try to make sense of like how it's going to impact these two brothers and thinking like, gosh, like if anybody knows their own grief, they should realize that it could go either way, right? It could bring people close. It could make it difficult. But I think um, one of the things I wanted to bring up in our group, in our discussion here was just some of the ways that you have um, heard grief be talked about in terms of how people should grieve together with other people or not. I'm wondering if either of you have talked with people about that or experienced that um, within the families and the people that you work with. Yeah, I think a lot of times there's a, a pretty common theme around, uh, or there can be, around keeping it positive so that once someone has passed away, that the goal is to come together and share like positive stories and happy memories. And um, I think it tends to serve two different purposes to not speak um, ill of the dead, to not be talking about you know, negative stories and relationship problems, those sorts of things, but also can serve to sort of suppress grief. Like we should not be sad right now. We should be focused on the fact that they're in a better place or that they're no longer suffering or that we get to be together or whatever that sort of variation looks like. Um, and for obviously grief is not a positive experience. That loss is pretty overwhelming, even when they're can be positive moments that you're experiencing during that grief. So I think that's a pretty common theme that I see get um, tricky really quickly, but can also be sort of a family narrative that people feel very bound to adhere to. And when we are sort of feeling like we're forced to only focus on positive uh, stories of the past or also sort of how we can sort of pick up and move on and keep going um, yeah. then we start to uh, really deny the complexity of that emotional experience and the complexity of that relationship as it existed 24 hours ago a year ago 10 years ago right that um, those rich experiences when they're denied can be really really problematic absolutely um Patricia did you want to add to that so it's also making me think of kind of some of the research around different types of grief and specifically making me think of like ambiguous loss. So, you know, sometimes with the death of a loved one, that's like a, it's not ambiguous, they're gone, right? Uh, there's other types of grief that can be similarly hard to cope with. And those are called ambiguous losses. And those tend to be around, um, loss of something that's still there, like maybe in a divorce where you're grieving the loss of a partner, but they're still there. And maybe you have to co-parent with them, but you're grieving that loss. And that all of the things that you guys have both talked about can also be true for those types of ambiguous loss as well. 
Yeah. And I think something, you know, to keep in mind when you're thinking about like, how do I be in my grief and also know that other people are grieving too? And how do I, I think one of the things I see is like, I'm so deep in my own pain and I don't know how to be there for others and theirs. There's almost this idea that you have to be able to show up a very certain way, like, or that you have to keep your grief at bay so you can be there for others. Um, And I think there's something really powerful and, and, you know, there's research to support this about just the way you cope in a relational sort of sense with regards to grief really matters. You know, some people go into sort of this problem solving or this sort of like everything's going to be okay, sort of this toxic sort of um, positivity around the grief. Make lemonade out of lemons. Right. Like it's going to make you resilient or this and that. And so like really um, recognizing that when you're grieving and just sharing your own grief, you might be validating someone else's, yeah. right? Um, and also really recognizing too that, um, you know, just to share space with someone who's also struggling with the same loss can just really fill that void of loneliness that one feels sometimes when they're grieving, um, which can, I think, further exacerbate the pain that one feels. Um, something else that really I think about with regards to grief is just really respecting that everyone will grieve at a different pace and in different ways. Um, and so when coming together as a family or trying to grieve, I think, um, you know, with other people, just everyone being really respectful of the way the one is grieving, like everyone sort of giving each other that space and that time to grieve in their own way and not being really judgmental of that or critical. You're not crying enough. You know, you're not showing enough pain. You're not showing enough this or that. Right. And that's like one of the worst things I can imagine someone saying, if I was really deep in my pain is to tell me I'm not sad enough. Right. Or I'm moving on too quickly. Right. So just really being mindful in how we are critical or thinking and about other people's grief and being really mindful not to express that, even if we think it right, to find a way to cope and manage with however we're reacting to that as opposed to sharing it and perhaps, um, you know, making it more difficult for the person who's already trying really hard to manage. Mm -hmm. Um, And just, you know, the other piece is like recognizing that (laughs) in this time of grief, you know, things could change in terms of you know, the roles that people play in the family might start to shift, right? The titles might start to shift, whatever that might be. And just to be really patient with each other because all the change that comes along with the loss of someone sometimes, people have to grow into that change. And it's not something everyone might feel comfortable doing at the same time, right? And so some people, when they lose someone, they don't want anything to change. They sort of want to keep things exactly as they are in part just to honor the person and feel like they're not moving on or life is going on around them and other people are ready to make the change one sometimes just to cope with it and sometimes because they feel it's necessary to adapt right quickly to move forward so just recognizing that it's a different experience for everyone and I just you know I think about families that cope collectively you know around the same loss that they're having and just how much compassion and care that you know, I hope that they share with each other in what is already a really hard time. Yeah, I think that's a really important piece about everybody can grieve differently. Um, and just being mindful and respectful of that, I think, is uh, a really important takeaway.
Now we're going to move on to the academic deep dive segment and discuss a new article titled The Surprise of Reaching Out, Appreciated More Than We Think, written by Dr. Peggy Liu at the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. So Yon Rim at William Patterson, and Dr. Lauren Min at University of Kansas, and Dr. Kate Min at Wheaton. Recently published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, this research explored how we keep connected to the people we care about, especially when we've been out of touch for a while. Although our relationships with our friends and families are essential for our health and happiness, our lives are often spent disconnected. People we care about may live far away, our communities are less walkable than in much of the rest of the world, and our jobs take up a lot of our time, so much of our time, and are increasingly <laughs> remote. In other words, we're not set up for bumping in to other people and have fewer opportunities for spontaneous social interactions. In this culture, intentionally checking in with people we care about may therefore be especially valuable. Relationships take work, as they say. The authors of this paper we're discussing in this deep dive explore the process of reaching out or gestures of checking in with someone to show we're thinking about them, such as sending an email to say, I'm thinking about you, or sending a small gift. I'm also thinking about just sending a text message. Um, <laughs> they suggest that it's possible we underestimate how much people really appreciate being reached out to by others. In other words, when we're thinking about a friend we haven't spoken to in a while and think about texting them to say, hi, we might also worry that texting them might be annoying because they're super busy. In general, we struggle to take other people's perspectives. We also tend to be self-critical and think negatively about how we perform in social interactions. Ugh, so true. <laughs> On average, people often overestimate how likely others may be to ask for help if they need it. Forgetting that people may feel embarrassed and vulnerable and therefore we often miss opportunities to help people we care about who otherwise won't ask because they're busy underestimating how likely we are to help if they ask. So the big picture, there are a lot of mispredictions that occur in our social interactions, so many. And I'm sure I'm probably higher than average, just to be fair. But Sarah, can you tell us how good are we at guessing how much our friends appreciate being reached out to? Just low key, sorry I didn't text either of you at all this summer. I'm pretty sure you did like so many times. Um, I oh my God, was it too many? I'm so sorry. So much. <laughs> it was actually super annoying. I was like really busy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so this really very cool paper um, that I'm not surprised has been picked up by lots of sort of popular media outlets at this point yeah. now um, over the last few weeks, because it's really fun and very sort of new, fresh way to think about how we stay connected in relationships. So um, they did in total 13 experiments almost 6,000 participants. Oh my We're not going to talk about all of them, just sort of overall what the big picture was of the science. It has a lot of experiments. And 
And they found some really, really cool um, processes that are happening when we're thinking about checking in with the people we care about. So in their first experiment, the researchers had participants recall a time when they had reached out to someone in their social circle, or they were reached out to just because or just to catch up, either by email, text, phone, after a prolonged period of not interacting with them. So any range of time from less than a month to 12 months. So that's sort of what they're defining as this sort of reaching out and checking in process for context for listeners. If they're thinking about, hmm, who could I do this for? This is how the researchers are defining it. Um, and then I'm hoping their... all of my friends who are listening right now will send me a text message. Wink. Wink. <laughs> I think I just said wink at the same time as you, which <laughs> also, if that's not a measure of how connected we are, um, was not a measure that they used in the study. However, um, in their next experiments, what they had participants do was reach out to someone that they were friendly with, but they considered yeah. a weak tie. So for example, college students um, were asked to send brief notes or small gifts to classmates they hadn't been in contact with for a while. Uh, not small gifts of their own volition that they had to like go find and create. This was part of the project, which is also really cool. So participants were asked to write a note to check in and say hello. They were told it would be sent to the person they had selected. And then the researchers did send the note, uh, oh, which I was reading really closely to see. Cause you know, sometimes we, you know, we manipulate participants. We have to tell them after we do it, but they really did actually send the note to the person. Lovely. And then they asked the note receiver, the recipient to read the note and then also complete a survey. Um, whereas- a really interesting uh, IRB process. Sorry, side note. Right, it would have yeah. Consent that person. But the findings. Yes, the they findings. do. So they did consent through the reaching out and getting a note. They were told that this was what they were consenting to. And they only got the note if they did. Uh, and then in the next study, they had um, the recipient received a link and were told that the initiator wrote them a note and gifted them a voucher redeemable for a bag of candy or snacks as part of the study, uh, which is the gift that they were um, also looking at to see if that was any different. Um, and then participants who were doing the reaching out were asked to rate how appreciative, happy, pleased, grateful they anticipated that friend oh. or acquaintance would be to hear from them. Um, anywhere from not at all, they're not going to care, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> the rating was just not at all. There's not not at all, they're not going to care. <laughs> just actualizing not at all to very much um and then in later experiments uh they also rated how they thought um the responder would feel in terms of being pleasantly surprised uh which is sort of this interesting dynamic about um what they're looking at so um the people on the receiving end of the check-in rated then how much they actually did appreciate the contact so what they found was in all 13 experiments, lucky researchers, those who initiated contact significantly underestimated how much it would be appreciated. So people uh, reached out to always appreciated the gestures of checking in more than the initiators thought that they would. The effect was true for both people who were in sort of closer relationships as well as those weak ties. Like maybe oh, we were in class together and we haven't spoken in like, you know, nine months last semester. Um, but it was a little bit stronger for the weak ties. We underestimate responders, recipients appreciation more when we're sort of a little bit more disconnected, less close in general. Um, and that was also tied to that 
remember that pleasantly surprised rating? Sure. Um, yeah. A weak tie reach out was more surprising to a responder. And thus there is a greater misalignment with what we expect. Um, so um, in general, appreciation for reaching out also occurred for those of you worried about, I don't have vouchers for candy to give out to my friends and family. Oh. Um, it, that appreciation for the reaching out occurred both for text messages and small gifts. Oh, good. Um, okay. So I think it has some really very practical, very easy to implement, Yeah, assuming that um, small reaching out is in your realm of possibility, which I imagine it is for most people. Um, staying connected to other people, as you shared earlier, Patricia, is key to our well-being, our health, yeah. our um, mental health. Our connections are really, really critical to our survival. And doing so by these casually reaching out means more than we realize that it will. Um, the reaching out can be brief. It can be small, low yeah. effort. And then what's really important, I think, especially since we misjudge this a lot, as you shared earlier, Patricia, um, people appreciate it more than we know. Yeah. Um, and reaching out to people we've lost touch with or we're less close with might be especially powerful because the more surprising our check-in, the better. Um, and uh, these participants also at one point were asked to sort of focus on how that surprise could be positive. Um, and when that was the case, they became more interested in reaching out. So, you know, I think oh. important to share with listeners to encourage them to touch base. You're going to um, uh, say hello to somebody, which takes 30 seconds, and they're going to feel really touched and they're going to feel like emotionally really touched. Yes, I suppose none of what they looked at was physical touch. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's an important clarification. I, no, uh, necessarily like physical reaching out. Just arms to yourselves, arms inside at all times. <laughs> I also wonder like if the person who is being reached out to mm -hmm. responded with like, oh, it's so lovely you checked in. I so appreciate it. If that would like, bolster the feeling sure. or the likelihood of it continuing continuing too i mean that would really help in the context of that specific relationship i imagine and i don't know if that sort of generalizes to other relationships they didn't look at that i don't know if they measured whether those dyads like uh reached out outside the study to say like hey that was cool i love candy uh, I was thinking about you too. You always wore the coolest shirts on our Tuesday class. I oh, I don't know. Sarah, <laughs> is this how you reach out to people? I'm sure it's fine. Uh, I mean, I have to take these findings to heart. For that's my first step, and then I'll start yeah, reaching yeah. out. Then I'll craft my message. Craft my message. So I can I ask, were there any limitations in terms of whether or not there could be a back and forth, or was there? Oh, sure. Yes, it was not a back and forth um, setup. So there wasn't sort of dialogue that happened. Uh, they asked the person to write the note. They deliver the note electronically. That person rates their experience of the note. But yeah. So did the uh, initial deliverer know that the delivery yes. appreciated it? Oh, did they share the appreciation back with them? Excellent question. <laughs> Um, I appreciate the complexity with which you both are breaking down the science and I cannot recall if that was something oh. they communicated back to them. 
No, it's just a really cool. Wait, wait, wait. Yes, they did. They communicated back to, no, they didn't. I don't know. Okay, they did. okay. <laughs> well, I mean, shout out to anybody who's super interested. There is a link in the episode notes. Go read the article yourself. Oh, that's nice. You like know, Sarah I, should go do again. Yes. That's the, the one thing I do wonder, I think that creates a limit sometimes, and maybe it's just for myself, but I assume other people that if you reach out, that it's going to open up the doors for a lot more potential uh, checking I, in. I, when, I, in fact, I don't have to Oh, no, no, no. I just wanted to say hi. I just want to say hi. It's just to say brief. She wants the boundary approach. I knew exactly where she was headed. I was, 100%. Not that I don't love to engage with, but no, no. Time. Been for a really long time. I just want to send the candy and then please do not respond, actually. Like, was there a do just, not respond option disclaimer? Like that allowed for everyone to feel okay with not. I know exactly where she was headed. I agree. Because the emotional labor, I do think there's <laughs> these incredible researchers, these 13 experiments, and we walked away like, oh, God, they haven't really opened up yet. a Pandora's oh, this box. Is exhausting. I already am so busy during the you day. You know why? I because have therapists read this and like, oh, do I have the capacity to take on whatever that re- response is going to be? <laughs> oh, I mean, do you never get those emails from, or people's like, oh, I just wanted to say hello. And then you're like, you just can't say hello back. Nice to hear from you. Hope you're doing well. You have to follow why not? up question there has why to be <laughs> why can't How I do you? it's so lovely to hear from you things are super busy here hope all is well we should catch up more in the future like why not oh I can't do that that just uh, gives me all <laughs> kinds of like it's such a dismissive statement I just oh is it okay wait never mind she took it to another level this is oh. not where I thought she was going. <laughs> the thing is I feel like I can't not open it up for more conversation though the desire is to say Good to hear from you. Let's catch up one day soon. Yeah. Do people do that and feel? feel yeah. Like also <laughs> lovely to hear from you. Or the text is just like, just wanted you know, I'm thinking of you. Hope you're well. And then the text back is like, thank you so much. Lovely <laughs> to hear from you. Hopefully we can catch up soon. XOXOXO. I'm going to try really it out. Fun, and when it really fails, I'm going to come back to this podcast. Okay, sounds good. I'm going to text you in a week and a half. No, no, you don't count. <laughs> oh, I don't count. No, you don't count in this experiment that I'm about to try. I'm She's going to try it 13 that. times. It's a replication attempt okay. is what it is. <laughs> All right, we've gotten a little bit off uh, mm-hmm. the mark here, but uh, fantastic study. Mm-hmm. Reach out to somebody you haven't reached out to. It's okay. They'll appreciate it. They won't think you're annoying. Sesson's anxiety, just don't listen to it at this juncture. We'll find another research paper that addresses that. <laughs> Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. You guys, it is everywhere. We hear relationship advice from our parents, our family, our friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. We read endless advice at us on all the social medias, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists on the world wide webs. That's how the kids call it. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. I know this is shocking, but this is the part of the show, ladies and gentlemen, where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. 
get at us on the Twitters, the Instas, or the Facebooks, all of them, at Attach Podcast, or go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please consider uh, rating and reviewing and subscribing to our podcast on your very favorite podcast app or YouTube, uh, and share it, of course, with your loved ones. Loved ones always love new podcast recommendations, so I hear. Also, we always have bonus good or bad advice for our Patreon subscribers. So if you uh, want that sweet, sweet bonus content, please <laughs> consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash attached for a small monthly amount. So I had a wonderful, relaxing summer, you guys. I really enjoyed it. I really needed it. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying like genuinely my mental health, I needed that. Uh, I felt like it was a reset and my stress and anxiety got to like a manageable level. We're not saying it was like low, but it was like manageable. But less than a month back into this academic year uh, and we are uh, really back to record levels of anxiety and stress here. Uh, it's really intense. So today's good and bad advice is truly about trying to find some good or bad advice about achieving work-life balance. Uh, it's a little bit like specifically for me, but like, it's okay. Not totally, like it's a hidden agenda, right? So I found what seems to be a comprehensive list of work-life balance tips at Better Up in an article, 12 Tips to Improve Your Work-Life Balance. And I was going to go through some of them uh, here in, in the episode and the remainder in our bonus episode. But before we get to that one, I also found... Um, an article from the Mayo Clinic, which I thought, oh, surely that's going to be like the really winner here because it's the Mayo Clinic. And I read through them and my anxiety immediately went up. So I'm just going to uh, read some of them to you here. Elevate your options, whatever that means. Seek support. Try a relaxing activity, so do more work. Get some exercise, again, do more work. Go get some sleep. Again, do less of your work and then get more sleep. And so you're thinking about it, mindfulness. So I was like, I don't know if that's really the route for me. So we're going back up to Better Up. So what I liked about Better Up, which I haven't really seen, I looked at a bunch of like websites for like tips for work-life balance is they have some for like in your work, but they also have a bunch um, that are like work-life balance in your home side, which I had never really seen that before. Usually it's all about like the work side and how to balance that. So we're going to do a little bit of each. Here are some improving your work-life balance at work. Take breaks. Even a 30 second micro break can improve concentration, reduce stress, keep you feeling engaged, make your work feel more enjoyable. I don't know if that's possible. Um, it's especially important to be mindful of this when you're working from home. That's a good point. Um, so take breaks, little micro 30 second breaks. Good or bad advice? So breaks, I think good, right? I think there is research to support that. It's that 30 second micro break that you just named that really irritates me. And it's possible because my employer has at some point, I think, sent out like the 30 second micro break recommendation. And if there's research to support that, please correct me. But 30 seconds is such a small amount of time. Uh, and I 
feel like it always inadvertently sounds like it promotes just continuing to work. Yeah, 30 because yeah. a 30 second break, I just am not sure. You said it improves concentration and stress and oh, enjoyable was the other thing. Like really 30 seconds. I guess maybe if you're um that would be a really interesting effect. There's so it's so hard to sort of uh, find significant effects in research when we make these big dramatic interventions. But 30 second micro break, somebody found all of those effects in research. I mean, I don't know. Just take some real breaks and schedule in time to get the actual work done that you need to and then track how much time you're spending on these activities and ask your supervisors for the space that you need to do the work that you need to do, including breaks, because that's um, necessary for creativity. Yeah. alone productivity. 30 seconds just is bugging me. Sorry. Yeah, it seems so little. So it's just potentially mm-hmm. bad advice here, Sessa. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I have um, a lot of issues with the whole idea of 30 second break, but oh, the good. biggest thing I, I have is the idea that just because you take a break, you're doing any relaxing. Um, oh, good one. What good. happens when you take a break? So sometimes you ruminate on the fact that I have to get back in 30 seconds. Why am I taking a 30 second break? I actually don't have time for this. You and I'm imagining that there's a stopwatch on my phone for like 30 seconds. Like Exactly. Relaxing. And you could turn on your social media and see something distressing and also just, you know, bring more tension to your body. And so more than anything, it's like, what are you doing with that break? And more than a break, I think it's about just being honestly, like if there's anything you do that's behavioral, cause there's a lot of stuff around self-care and behavioral, like intervention mm-hmm. recommendations that bug me just because mm-hmm. I don't think we're looking more at the deeper mm-hmm. things that yeah. are related 100%. to our inability to like find more balance in our lives. Like it's all much more deeper rooted than you try this or try that. Right. But I won't go there right now, but I will say breathing is something we forget to do mm-hmm. as we're working. And like that to me is the bigger need mm-hmm. that we have. Yeah. It's just to I be just mindful breath. of our breath as we're working and just being, if you do anything with the 30 seconds, say you give it just to be really tracking your breath, like something that's going to actually bring some physiological, you know, shift in your body that will then help you mentally. Mm-hmm. Like I think- better. So much better. Uh, they were both fantastic. So seconds. we're saying bad advice, but if all you have time with in your day is 30 seconds for a break, make sure to do something different, like to do something during that and try not to ruminate. Okay. The next one on the work side, uh, Sarah already kind of alluded to it, is ask for flexibility. Having open, honest conversations about your needs and those of your employer and team can lead to a productive solution. Those can include flex time, compressed work week schedule, job sharing, and other creative options. Ask for flexibility, good or bad advice. Yeah, uh, what? sorry. No, what? that's okay. Yes. So I'm not sure about what the research says about um, the asking for flexibility piece. Because right. I think, again, Sassen was referring in her last response to sort of bigger picture, like systemic issues in like um, systems of employers and how we treat employees and uh, et cetera. That 
I don't know, asking for flexibility. I don't know how often like employers are willing to sort of meet those needs, but I do know that there is research to suggest that flexibility in the workspace can be very promoting of um, uh, engagement in work, of um, being able to sustain that work, preventing burnout. I mean, some of that yeah. research has come out since COVID, right? That people who are allowed to do telework, remote work, it takes out the stress of the commute and taking out the stress of the commute and the time of the commute and letting people yeah. be in their own comfortable environments can really promote people's sense of safety in the workspace, promote their ability to be productive and just gives them more time in their day. I mean, think how many 30 second work micro breaks you could take if you were not commuting, uh, if you were able to work remotely. Um, so there is definitely research to support that flexibility. And I think it should be even bigger than it probably has been, honestly, based on yeah. what we know from the research. So good advice. If you're yeah, able I would take and advice. you feel safe about talking to your employer about yeah, it. Yeah, that's the different piece. I'm not sure about what that looks like in the work environment. But. Yeah. Uh, Sesson, good or bad advice? Yeah, I think asking for your needs to be met is always a good idea yeah. in general, right? And I think when you feel particularly safe in a relationship that can even, you know, you can do that really openly and well. But I think recognizing that a lot of these employer-employee relationships have power dynamics and hierarchies involved. So sometimes when you're asking for your needs to be met, you have to know how that person will use that, yeah. right? Um, and so, but if you can, right, I think, yes, it's rather than just to ask for your needs to be met, just being in dialogue with the person that you're asking for support from about, you know, what it is that you need in your life to be successful in the work. So really, framing it too. It's like when there's flexibility in my life, these are the ways that I can do my job and do it better, right? Or do it well. So to come from like that position of also empowering yourself to feel like you're doing it, not in a way to say like, I can't do this thing, but like I could be doing it better if I actually had this opportunity to yeah. do it with some more flexibility or whatever it is you need. Yeah. The communication is key and hopefully you have that uh, work environment where you believe that you can um, have that communication with your supervisors. I'm also thinking about one of my good friends here in town who's a licensed social worker or actually working towards her licensure. Um, and she was talking about her caseload and how like a ton of people at her work are quitting and how she's just mm -hmm. overwhelmed and like, oh my gosh, what's your caseload? Like 40, 50? And she looked at me, she said 120. Oh, I was like, oh, oh, that's so many. Um, oh. and yeah, she says she sees like 12 people a day. Oh, so many, it's, it's, not sustainable. it's not sustainable and it's really hard in some of these environments to find that. Yeah. Um, so let's pop over to improving work-life balance at home. Maybe something we're a little bit more familiar about, um, the research about as well. Um, so communicate boundaries so you can truly unplug. Set and communicate your work hours to your colleagues and customers so that you have clear boundaries. This should include when you'll work and when you won't be available to respond. One simple way to achieve this is to set up an autoresponder to alert those who contact you via email that you are offline. This message can also let them know when you'll respond. This removes pressure to keep checking work emails. So set boundaries, communicate boundaries so you can truly unplug mm -hmm. seemingly from your home. Yeah. Good or bad yeah. advice. Good advice. 
I think that's good advice. Um, I don't know about the communicating to anyone that sends me an email that I'm offline. I don't need them to know where I am. I think that's another boundary. You don't need to know anything about what's happening in my life, whether it's a work hour or not a work hour. If I'm working, I don't need to be responding to every single message immediately. And I think that is definitely um, a contributor to burnout is a lot of digital communication mm-hmm. um, that people have an expectation then I think of quick very rapid, immediate response. And you can't do the job at hand if all you're doing is responding to other questions that come in like that. So I think clear boundaries are really important. I think communicating that if possible, if safe to do is important, but also maintaining them once you have identified for yourself where your boundaries are is really important because the minute you start blurring that and people get used to you responding any hour of any day, it is much harder to turn it off. It doesn't mean you can't turn off and no response is also a boundary. Just because someone's reached out and asked for something at nine o'clock on a Friday, if you're not night shift that night and it's not an emergency, you don't necessarily need to respond. Um, and I think, uh, regardless of how people react to you when you're setting that boundary doesn't mean that you should not be setting it. Um, I think this is a really important one for, uh, work-life balance and how work spills over into our home environments, which is really problematic for family relationships. So very good advice with an exclamation point after that. (laughs) Sesson? Yeah, I, I support it too. I think being really clear in what your expectations or your boundaries are upfront can be really helpful. So people aren't sort of confused or surprised by, you know, your lack of response or, you know, the time you take. They may be responding in two hours. You may be responding in, you know, 24 hours and just letting them know that is what I do. And I found when I set that ahead of time, if I can, if the situation allows, that tends to really, I think, help someone sort of understand sort of what our boundary is professionally and personally. Um, so it's always, I think, been helpful to me. Um, but I also am in a position where I have some power and mm-hmm. can really set those boundaries. So I think yeah. it, there's a privilege there that not everyone yeah. has where um, there's consequences for other people in ways that there may not be um, for some of us. So I'm mindful of that too. I think that's really a powerful statement because I think that that is then our role as people in authority positions, even though I'm an assistant professor, I don't have all that much power, but I have power when considering students. So I think for us, it's really important to make sure we respect the boundaries of people who have less uh, power than us. So I frequently tell people Um, you know, I might email you at crazy times because that's when I happen to be able to get to all of your emails. There's never an expectation that you are going to respond during those times that I email you outside of work hours. Um, I think it's really important for us to uh, model uh, expectations and hopefully they will go launch into the world understanding what a healthy relationship is with their employer or their superior and know like what an unhealthy one is. At least it's a hope I have, but I agree. <laughs> it's, some people don't have the power in those, but I think for those who are in power, it is our responsibility to also do that. Um, last one for this episode. And then again, check out the bonus content for more. Um, Invest in relationships. Lack of strong relationships increase the risk of premature death from all cause mortality by 50%. 
That's nearly as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I know. So lack of strong relationships. I wonder who they're saying. We need to look that up. On the flip side, solid connections and social support can improve health and increase longevity. Make sure to spend your time nurturing relationships that matter to you. If you took uh, the previous step of unplugging, then you'll be able to give more attention to the people you spend your time with. Good or bad advice, Woods? <laughs> it's fantastic advice. I think it is the advice that founded this podcast. Uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> that is exactly what we would always say about how powerful um, close connected relationships are that they literally uh, benefit your survival. Um, yep. And setting boundaries around how much work can spill over into those relationships and into your time outside of work um, then hopefully creates more space for you to be able to invest in those relationships that are actually literally make or break. Literally make or break. Did so I say very British? good advice? Well, no, that's I, even better I, advice. Yeah, I, I know it's always well, sounds more profound. Um, <laughs> Sesson, good or bad advice? Um, I think sometimes advice is based on whether or not it's actually achievable. Um, and I hear that. And I think that, you know, it's easier said than done. The structural system. Strong systemic... relationships? Well, no, I'm saying like, it would be wonderful and ideal if we could all invest in that way, our time and energy, but there's a lot of demands that we have on our lives. Right. And so I'm saying structurally, institutionally, there are a lot of stressors that sometimes are barriers to us investing in the ways that we want. So I guess I heard that and I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a culture, in a society Mm -hmm. that really helped us really nurture that? And that's where I was really going. It was like, I think about my own relationships, how much more I would like to invest, Mm -hmm. but all these responsibilities that Mm -hmm. sometimes feel like they get in the way of that. Not to say I, I shouldn't be setting more boundaries, but it would be nice if we lived in a culture where that was centered, right? And that idea of relationships was centered more. It's not though, you know, there's a family friendly and work environments are not the common thing that we see, right? Mm -hmm. I think we have to, as a larger society, really rethink, like if we're talking about how relationships are literally about our health and our well-being and our Mm -hmm. literally, it's life. It is, yeah. We're definitely not setting our culture up for success Mm -hmm. in that way, you know? So if we could ban or restrict tobacco, right? Maybe we have a chance to... (laughs) figure out a way to solve for those too. We'll see. Is tobacco banned? No, it's more restricted. That's why I said said it's restricted. Oh, okay. You know, you used to be able to like walk outside and find those little machines and, you know, young kiddos could get, it's harder now, right? Am I wrong? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Yes. Yes. We started on tobacco. We started talking about tobacco. (laughs) But all in all, having strong relationships is good, right? Like that is good advice. I guess if that's the question, yes. (laughs) It's not like she was saying it was such good advice. She would really like to prioritize uh, restructuring our entire cultural priorities. And I don't disagree with that either. I would agree with that advice as well. So I agree with the advice from this article. And also I second uh, Lee agree with Sesson's advice about restructuring our society. <laughs> Coming out real strong. Season four. Welcome back to Attached. Welcome to season four. Relationships are good. Change the society. And scene. Thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on the social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you wonder whether to follow or pass on. 
cannot wait to talk.